Let's again turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, and let's read the first 10 verses of this chapter. Please follow in your own Bibles as I read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, because we have heard the good news, the gospel, it's been preached to us because we've been born again, not of seed that's perishable, but imperishable. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is kind. And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected. This became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, let's come to God and ask that he would make these words precious to us. And if you have not yet tasted that the Lord is kind, may you taste that and know it for a fact this very evening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would so work that these blessings which are poured out on those who have come as those who are believers to this chief cornerstone, that we might know these privileges not merely on paper in our Bibles, but experientially, day by day in our lives as we walk in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom may it be that we would shine like stars in this world. Help us then to appropriate, appreciate all of these privileges which are ours in Christ Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Now, as we read these verses, we see uh, from verse uh, 3 especially, that Peter kind of takes for granted that his readers have tasted that the Lord is kind. He says, if you have, it's not an if of doubt, it's a, an if of supposition. If you've tasted that the Lord is kind, you know these things of which I'm speaking. And so, let me just ask you as we begin, have you tasted? Well, if you're a Christian, you say yes. They, uh, Peter seems to be alluding to what David said in Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Well, if you haven't yet tasted, may it be tonight that you would taste. And as Peter describes the blessing of coming to Jesus, coming to this living stone, this chief corner stone, this precious stone, if you've come to him, he describes some of the privileges that are yours. And we saw some of these in verse 5 a few weeks ago. Uh, we saw that one of the privileges is that you are dead stones who have come to life, coming to him as living stones. Remember, we saw that there's a, something of a shock in this phrase, stones aren't alive, but you are living stones, living stones. And then we saw that not only are we living stones, but we're built into a spiritual house that is a, a temple for the worship of God. We, the people of God, not this building as wonderful as it is, as thankful as we are that we have a dry roof over our heads while outside it's wet, inside it's dry. We're thankful for this physical building, but even more for the spiritual temple built of you all, of living stones. And we saw that we're not only the temple, but we're inside the temple as a holy priesthood to offer up living sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices to God. But now we're going to, this evening, look at some more of the privileges of tasting that the Lord is kind. Some more of the blessings that come to all of those who taste the Lord's goodness. And we find this especially in verse 9, and we really only have time to start uh, expounding these privileges. But look at verse 9 and uh, just maybe get your fingers out and count on your fingers how many blessings you come up with here in verse 9. But you, if you've tasted that the Lord is kind, if you've come to him as to a living stone, if you have believed in him and you're not disappointed, this is what you have. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. And we might translate that, you are a people who are God's special treasure. And this is that you may proclaim the excellences of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That calling is another privilege. But then we go on into verse 10. You are not a people, but now you're the people of God, which is kind of an echo of what he said in verse 9. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Have you tasted that the Lord is kind? Have you tasted all of these blessings? What a great Savior we have, who passed the righteousness test for us. But in addition to righteousness, He's lavished all of these privileges and blessings on his people. Well, what we're going to do this evening, looking at verses 9 and 10 especially, I'm going to start in, but I, as we look at these privileges, I want to just note, before we jump in with both feet, to notice Peter's source. Where does he get this idea? How does he come up with these things? And so Peter's source, which is in the Old Testament. And then we want to consider the great blessings enumerated, and we're not going to finish those, so we'll just start on those. But then I want to notice that in the text is also a purpose for receiving all these blessings and benefits, 
as he says, and I'll just mention it here, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you. We're not to be dumb as we receive these blessings, but we're to proclaim what he's done for us. And so as we dig in then, let's begin and consider Peter's Old Testament source. And as you read these phrases, in my Bible, they're in, all, in small caps, which indicates that it's an Old Testament quote. Well, Paul, Peter doesn't just think these things up out of the blue. He's finding a source in Old Testament scripture and applying what is said there to the New Testament people of God. Let's look at a couple of passages. We, there are many, actually. If you have in your Bible uh, some uh, side column references or center column, wherever they are, you'll see that there are many verses listed here, uh, verses 9 and 10, uh, verse 9 especially. But let's look at two passages especially. First of all, Exodus chapter 19. And we'll look at verses 3 through 6. Exodus 19. So this is just before the Ten Commandments were given. So this is at the giving of the law. There they are at Mount Sinai. The people of God, the Old Testament, uh, Old Covenant people, they have come out of Egypt. They've been delivered from uh, captivity in Egypt. From slavery, the house of slaves. And here they are. By Mount Sinai, camped in front of the mountain, and we read in verse 3 of Exodus 19, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. You shall be my own possession. You shall be my special people, my own treasure. My purchased people out of Egypt. I bought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt. You are mine my special people, my treasure. And then he says, you shall be a kingdom of priests. There in verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament translates this, you shall be to me a royal priesthood. Same exact phrase that we have there in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, royal priesthood. And you shall be to me a holy nation. Exact words in the Greek translation that we have there in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so Peter is now applying to the new covenant people of God descriptions of the old covenant people of God as they've come out of Egypt. Look now at Deuteronomy chapter 7. So now they're poised not to receive the law. This has been their, their possession for some years. But now they're poised at the border of Canaan to enter into the promised land. And Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read these words, verses 6 through 8. 
having warned them what they should do when they enter the promised land to the idols of the peoples, which we just read in Judges, they didn't do. But he says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so, again, we have here these phrases. You are a holy people to the Lord. A holy people. You are a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And I want just to note here in, these, uh, in this passage, why? Why did God confer on them these blessings? Well, we read the verse, not because you were more numerous, not because you were any great shakes. There was nothing really about you that made me look down from heaven and say, oh, there's the people I want. Oh, I want that nation to be my nation. He said, no, nothing in you. It was all my love. It was all my doing. We would put it this way. It was all sovereign grace. It's all my grace to you is my doing because I set my love on you because the Lord loved you. Well, because he kept the oath to your forefathers. Why did God choose Abraham? Abraham worshiped idols in Ur of the Chaldees. It wasn't for anything good in Abraham. It was because of sovereign grace. And so now here's the point I want to make out of this source. To whom does Peter now apply these phrases that he pulls out of Old Testament statements of God to his people in the Old Covenant? He, he applies them not just to Jewish Christians. Now, some say that Peter was writing to Jews who were scattered abroad, and, and that may be so that they were primarily in his thoughts. But look at the description of the people to whom he is writing in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. This is not merely a description of Jewish Christians. This is a description of all Christians scattered abroad, aliens. Now, we know what it means to live as an alien. We lived in the Philippines 35 years, and we're not citizens there. We live, all of us, in a sense, as aliens. Your citizenship is in heaven. This world is not our home. And so when we go back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and look at these descriptions, he's talking to those who are Christians and applying to them descriptions of, that, that were initially applied to God's old covenant people. Who are the Jews now? 
Well, Romans chapter 2 tells us, I want to just read a few passages to underscore this point, that God's people now are not a nation over in Palestine, but God's people throughout the earth who put their faith in Jesus. First, uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Not outward inheritance of a certain set of genes, but a change in the heart circumcised heart that's what makes one a true jew circumcision of the heart by the spirit not of the letter look at galatians in chapter 3 we have these we're going to look at three verses in galatians chapter 3 verse 6 and 7 even so abraham believed god and it was reckoned to him as righteousness so who then are abraham's children Verse 7, therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Those who have the faith of Abraham who believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Everyone who has the faith of Abraham is a child of Abraham. And then look down at verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The Galatian church was not predominantly Jews. Verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. So my point here is this, that the one nation or people of God today is us. <laughs> His people that we have gathered here who are joined to that one olive tree. There's only one olive tree in Romans 9 or 10, Pastor Chansky. 11. Thank you. There's only one olive tree, not two olive trees. And if you're in that olive tree, it's because you're in Christ, joined to him. And so whether Jew, Gentile, Israeli, or Arab, may I say, there's only one way to be right with God. That's to be in Christ Jesus. And so when Peter now applies these phrases from the Old Testament before they received the law, as they received the law, as they were poised to enter the promised land, they were God's special people. We today are God's special people. The first church, of course, was all Jews in Jerusalem. But by God's kindness, they spread that gospel throughout the known world. It came to America, it came around the globe, came to the Philippines, and it's been everywhere, every race, nation, tribe, and tongue. God has a special people. Now let's look at these descriptions, these great blessings, which are enumerated here in going back to 1 Peter chapter 2, applied from the Old Testament now to the new covenant people, but you... You who believe in Jesus, you have come to Jesus, you who believe in him and are not disappointed, you have received this precious value. You've come to this living stone, this choice stone. This is what you have. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession. You have been called out of darkness into light. You were once not a people, now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Blessings upon blessings. Well, let's take them up one by one, and we'll only get through three this evening. First of all, you're a chosen race. A chosen race. Now, I know some versions translate a chosen generation. Well, now, uh, if we look at the Greek language, there is a word that means generation. Uh, that means like a, a group of people that are alive at a specific time, a period of time. Uh, that generation. And Jesus spoke of this generation is a, an evil generation, the people who were, that he was talking to at that time. Uh, but this word is a different word. This word means a group of people that share certain characteristics. Listen to Thayer's Greek lexicon definition, we're one of them. He says, this is the aggregate of many individuals of the same nature, kind, sort, or species. And I think the word race then uh, fits that. We are a chosen race. Well, what is it that this race has in common that makes them a race? Uh, what is their uh, genus? Whether red or yellow, black, and I always add brown, or white, what is our race? Well, we are elect. We are chosen. We are homo sapiens selecti. If you may pardon me for throwing in a little Latin there. We are elect human beings, a chosen race. Now, what does that mean? It means God in eternity past set his love on certain individuals. Chosen before the foundation of the earth, elect in him. This is Bible doctrine. This is not Steve Hoffmeyer said that. It's the Bible. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that uh, they were saved since everlasting. They have to come to Christ, and so they have to be called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that election, that being chosen, is only manifested when they actually come to him. But it points to the fact that God has a people. They're a chosen race. Now, why are they chosen? Again, like the Israelites of old, it's not because we were any more numerous. Well, if you're one person, you're not more numerous than any other one person. Uh, or, or should we say more intelligent, nicer, kinder, more gentle, more soft-spoken, more, well, having done more good works. Well, as one of our hymns puts it, chosen not for good in me. Not for good in me. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just look with, with me there at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, perhaps you'll find yourself in this list. For consider your calling. And so now he's talking about that point in time when this eternity past election 
becomes real in the life when they're called out of darkness to light. He says, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen, because you see the ones who are then called in time are the ones whom he chose in eternity. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's he who passed my test of righteousness. It, he, it is he who gives us wisdom. It is he who works in me sanctification. It is he who redeemed me. I boast in him. So the point here, though, is this. We have what the one preacher called the five-ranked army of human nothingness. Which rank do you find yourself in? Are you among those who are foolish or those who are weak, or those who are base, that means lowly, or those who are despised, or are you just a plain nobody, the things which are nothing, or maybe you're all five. Which rank do you fit in? Chosen not for good in me. These are the things that God has chosen, the people God has chosen, to nullify, to put to shame those that are. So what do we have? We have Christ. We're chosen, a chosen race. This is what sets us apart from all the rest of the world. And it's not color. It's not your economic standing. It's not your social standing. It's not how much education you have. It's do you know Christ? Are you in Christ? A chosen race. That's what makes us special before God. Let us praise God together for his amazing grace to call us out of darkness into his marvelous light, to select us out of all of the billions on the face of the earth. Make us his, a chosen race. But then the second description that he gives here in in 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a royal priesthood. Now we saw back in verse 5 of chapter 2 that Peter had said that you are the spiritual house for a, for a holy priesthood. So we already considered to some degree what this means. We're a holy priesthood. That means we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's our work. That's who we are. But there's something additional here that uh, Peter adds now as he borrows this phrase from Exodus chapter 19. You are a royal priesthood. Now, back in Exodus, in the Hebrew, it literally says you are a kingdom of priests. I'll pause for a moment. Were all Israelites, everyone in that kingdom, were they all priests? Could not be. 
of the 12 tribes, only one tribe could be priests, and that was the Levites. If you're a Benjamite, a Danite, whatever else I eat, but not a Levite, you could not be a priest. So, as one commentary put it, this description really wasn't fulfilled until the great high priest came. And now, as Peter applies that language to us, you are a kingdom of priests. You are, and he changes, he, he borrows, he uses the Greek translation, you are royal priests. In other words, everyone in this kingdom, everyone in the church, everyone who is, has come to the Savior, to this living stone, everyone who has believed in him is a priest. And we saw that last time, that we're all priests. We all are active here. This is not a one-man show. We're all offering up our spiritual sacrifices to God together. But he adds now this phrase, royal. We're royal priests, not just holy priests, that was back in verse 5, were royal priests. Now, that could be taken a couple of ways. And I think it's appropriate for us to take it in both of these couple of ways. First of all, uh, royal priests are priests who serve the king. You might talk about a royal servant. I am a royal cook. What does that mean? Well, I cook for the king. I'm a royal footman. Well, what does that mean? Well, you follow him around and pick up his clothes that he drops on the ground. Uh, these are those who serve the king. Well, we're royal priests who serve the king of kings. And that's a great privilege in itself. We are offering up spiritual sacrifices to the great king, to his praise and honor. But furthermore, again, going back to the original statement back in uh Exodus, you are a kingdom of priests, you are kings and priests. You're priests who are kings. Now, look at Revelation chapter 1. We want to just look at a few texts that underscore this, that in the new covenant, we're not only priests who serve the king and worship the king, but we are priests who are kings. Look at Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. John writes to the seven churches, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, verse 5, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So he's the great king. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood and he has made us to be a kingdom Priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, that phrase from Exodus, a kingdom and priests. Look now at chapter 5 and verse 10. Same language. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So when he says kingdom, it doesn't just mean that they're going to be citizens in the kingdom but they're going to be reigning in the kingdom. They will reign upon the earth. As Paul promises, or as God promises through Paul in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Now, as Lenski put it, 
To be priests who are kings means that there is no one between us and God. In other words, we don't need another priest to mediate. We, of course, Jesus Christ, but he is God. There's one God and one, one mediator between man and God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He is that mediator, but there's no other mediator. We don't need another mediator because we're all priests. We can go direct to our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's nothing between us and God, no one between us and God, the Lord Jesus. But also, Lenski said, there's no one over us but God. We're kings. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to order the policemen around and uh, tell the governor what to do, etc., etc. But when it comes to spiritual matters, there's no one above us but God. You're priests and kings. This is who you are. Priests who are kings. Now, this is much more than a Jew could ever do. Remember we said that Jews could not all be priests. And furthermore, a priest could not be a king, and a king could not be a priest. Uzziah, the king, uh, thought that he could, and he found out to his sorrow that he couldn't. He remember that Uzziah the king went into the temple with incense to burn incense before the Lord. And the priest came and said, no, you're not allowed to do this. He says, I'm the king. And he was struck with leprosy until the day he died. And they hurried him out of the temple because a king could not be a priest. But here we are in the new covenant. We're both kings and priests serving the great king, worshiping the great king, and serving under him, reigning under him. And so these nobodies, these who are base, these who are foolish, we will reign over the great ones of the earth, the proud ones of the earth. This is what we are. Furthermore, and the third description we'll look at, and you are a holy nation, a holy nation. Now, this is the same exact phrase we saw in Exodus 19, 6. Uh, but the point is, we're all a nation. We're one nation. Though scattered all over the earth, as we also sing, we're elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. And so here we are. Uh, and, and this is something, if you've traveled, as I have had the privilege of doing, to churches around the world, in Philippines, in Korea, in uh, Malaysia, in Singapore, in Australia, in the UK, in Africa. This is all the same nation. As I quoted from Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We gather together at this nation at the throne of God, the mercy seat. Every Lord's day, as the sun goes around the earth, or the earth turns, the people of God gather to that throne, one nation, under God, indivisible. That's God's nation, a holy Nation. Now, what is the description of this nation? It's a holy nation. And let's put our stress on this. The word nation uh, indicates that we're all one. There's a union here. But we're a holy nation. This word holy, of course, as you well know, means separate. 
We're called out from the world. What sets us apart? Well, not, you know, that we're, well, as some translations say, we're a peculiar people. We'll come to that phrase. Maybe we're a little peculiar in various ways. But it's not that which sets us apart. We're a peculiar people because we're called to be His. We're set apart from the world. We're no longer in the world in terms of, we're not no longer of the world, even though we still live in the world. We're no longer like the world in many ways. Oh yeah, okay, I wear this suit. I bought this at Macy's probably some, I don't know how many years ago. It still fits. It's like a suit that a lot of other people bought at Macy's. What's the difference? It's not the external appearance necessarily, although it can affect external appearance. It's the heart. It's what sets us apart. We're a holy nation. What is it? This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Unstained by the world. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We're to be a holy nation. That is, we don't march to the tune of the world. We don't follow the, necessarily the fads and the fashions of what is dictated to us by Hollywood or any other prescribers of fashion. What the latest social media would tell us is all the rage. We are dictated to by the law of God. We march to his drums. We follow his tune. We follow his law. And his law is to us a delight. And this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And they're not burdensome. But in his law is our delight, day and night, set apart from the world, a holy nation. Well, let's just stop here and, and apply these things that we've learned so far, these blessings, these privileges that belong to those who have tasted indeed that the Lord is kind. Well, let's first of all consider the method of, of Peter, this source that he has, that he's applying now to Christians these descriptions which are snatched, as it were, uprooted from Old Testament uh, descriptions of the Old Covenant people. With regard to this method, remember, there's only one way of life. There's only one way in which people will be reconciled. And we abhor, just thinking of present current events, we abhor acts of terrorism. We abhor, abhor the murder of mothers and children. Cruel, harsh acts. We keep it in perspective. The only solution to this strife, ultimately, not to deny a right of a nation to defend itself, but the only solution to the hatred and violence is what it's always been. Israelites, Israelis, need Christ. Arabs need Christ. Hamas needs Christ. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. This is not a new strife. 
Ephesians chapter 2. It's been going on for some time. Verses 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And so he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And so we need to pray for Palestine. We need to pray for the world. That God will bless gospel preachers as they bring this good news to both sides of conflicts. We had a visitor in our home. Uh, it was the Lord's Day, the first Lord's Day of the pastor's conference, a man who happened to show up at our church because he was in our country and looking for a place to worship. He was from the Ukraine. And as we had him over to our table for lunch, he said that his prayer for his country was not just peace, but that God would bring a change of heart would save many people there. That's what I'm saying. As we see that other distinctions, especially Israel, whatever, they need Christ. And so let's pray for that. But then the second thing that I want to apply is this description that we are a chosen race. We're one race here. And in this church, I bless God, I praise God that we have many what the world would call races and we're together. And I have not smelled one whiff of racism in our congregation. Red and yellow, black, brown, and white. We're precious in his sight. One race, a chosen race. Racism exists in the world. It's a terrible thing. Let it not even show a shadow here at Trinity Baptist Church. Now, maybe some would say, well, you're, you're, you're setting up a new racism. You said, you are the chosen race. That means I'm out. I'm not of the chosen race. Well, poor me. Dear friend, we didn't reject you. If you reject Christ, it's your own doing. But it's not his doing because he says, well, of course, in a sense, it's his doing, but he says to all, Come unto me, all you who are elect. That's not what he said. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You come to him, you're weary with the burden of your sin. You're weary with thinking, I will face God in judgment in that last day, and I cannot pass the test. You come to him. Will he receive you? To him who comes to me, I will not, never cast him out. And so, if you're not here with us, it's not our doing. It's your doing. Come to him. Chosen race. A royal priest. We are royal priests. Well, 
Consider what you are in Christ. You're kings and priests. You have a great privilege. You have a great position. And it's not that you purchased it by your own doing and you earned it by good works. It's all of Christ. It's his purchased gift to his people, royal priests. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. If I could insert on thrones in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So I remember I received a, a card one time as going back when I was in college on the front of it said, don't look down. Okay, I opened it up and said, you're seated in the heavenly places in Christ. <laughs> well, where are you? You're a royal priest. You ever get depressed? Yeah, I've been there. There are things that are discouraging in this sin-cursed world. Tons of them. But consider this. Who are you in Christ Jesus? You're a royal priest. You've been set upon a throne with him. He is, of course, the great king. And he's the great high priest, and you're not going to supplant him. But he graciously takes his people, puts them with him. Royal priests. And then, from that position, offer up spiritual sacrifices well-pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. And you are, furthermore, and lastly this evening, a holy nation. A holy nation. Of course, we are a nation. We're his people, one people. Are you a holy nation? Are you part of that holy nation? Are you, in, as a matter of fact, separate from the world, called out of this world, called out of darkness, which the world is in, into his marvelous light? Not that we leave the world yeah, we have to rub shoulders with the world. We work in the world. We have to uh, work with all manner of worldlings. And sometimes that is a painful experience. But at the same time, are you holy in the midst of that world? Are you living separately? Are you marching with that different law, the different master, a different set of desires, different longings, different motivations? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Are you holy? Oh, no, I'm not saying perfect. No one here is perfect. The Lord Jesus is the only uh, perfect man to have walked this world, this earth. But it's because you have the righteousness of another. And he has become to you not merely righteousness, as we read from Corinthians, but also sanctification. He has worked in you to set you apart from the world. Are you part of this holy nation? If you're not, and I say this in closing, this is a great high priest who is righteousness. There's a great high priest who laid down his life as the sacrifice. He was the priest and he was the sacrifice. And he sacrificed himself for what? Not just an example but as a 
payment for the penalty of the sins of all of his people? Is he your sacrifice? Is he your great high priest? Is he your righteousness? He can be. Let me read one more verse from, second, from 1 Peter chapter 2. As Peter puts it this way, this precious value is for you who believe. Trust him. What does that mean? It means you trust him. It means you don't say, well, I can do this. It means Jesus did it. And I lay my all on him. My only hope in this world and for the world to come and for judgment is Jesus Christ. My righteousness, Jesus, my sacrifice. I put my only hope in him. To those who believe in him, you have this precious value. Trust him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these descriptions, these privileges that are ours as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And may we remember these things and live in the light of them. And may it be that those who have not yet tasted that you are kind and good, that they would have holy envy and desire these great blessings, which are only found in Christ Jesus. We ask in his precious name. Amen.